Friends, once again, my name's Mitchell Boone. I am uh, the pastor here at White Rock. And, uh, you know, if you're a guest and you've just found us online, welcome. We are ending a series entitled Faithful Friction. How do we have peace in the midst of conflict? And um, really, it's this series, I think, is born out of our understanding that conflict is always going to exist. Uh, Nietzsche actually said to live is to suffer, right? But to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. Um, I don't know if I 100% buy that, but I do believe that to live is to be conflicted, right? We are always going to find conflict in our life. And um, naturally, we're not good with dealing with conflict, right? We have two natural responses to conflict, uh, fight or flight. Um, and we must cultivate, I think, within us an ability to be present in conflict and possess a non-anxious presence in the midst of our conflict. The truth is, before we even get to that impulsive move, we spend a lot of time trying to navigate around conflict or to avoid it. So regardless of the truth that we will be in conflict, right, that conflict is, is, is inevitable if we are to live in this world, we still spend an exorbitant amount of time trying to avoid conflict. And in fact, for me, it's, it's like driving around Dallas these days, right? It doesn't matter where you are going, what route you are taking, how you're trying to get from point A to point B, ultimately you will hit untimely, lengthy, disruptive construction wherever you drive in Dallas, right? It happens to me all the time. Like Garland Road's a really great example of this. From PV to Jupiter right now, Garland Road is a complete mess. And uh, at first I was all, all about it, right? I was excited that we were gonna get some nice new stoplights. And then one day the entire road is destroyed, like almost overnight. So I try to find an alternate route. And I find myself weaving down Hermosa onto Easton, and guess what? Easton's completely destroyed, right? All jacked up. And the only saving grace in the midst of this construction that is taking place on Garland Road is that my three-year-old or soon-to-be three-year-old is obsessed with skid steers, right? Regardless of where I'm driving in Dallas, I will have delays because of construction. Regardless of what we do in our life, we will find ourselves in the midst of conflict, right? No matter where we turn, we will hit this friction. And so the question that we've been struggling with together is how do we faithfully respond in the midst of this conflict and friction? What is a faithful response and how do we possess it and how do we teach others to faithfully engage in the con uh, conflict? 
The last two weeks have been focused really on the other person in the midst of conflict, right? How do we listen well is a generous and grace-filled way for us to, to be present with others even when we disagree. And how do we forgive well, which is really about us, still centers on our ability to see the other person and to offer forgiveness, whether we do that publicly or privately. But today we're really focused on ourselves. How do we know ourselves? How do we set boundaries? How do we develop a voice? Because learning to handle conflict is really all about learning ourselves. Because whether we like to admit it, we are often responsible for the conflict we find ourselves in in some form or fashion. And so to help us get there, to help us have a good conversation about that this morning, um, we're going to look at the gospel story, right? Because the gospel story is told out of this divine conflict. And the holy struggle, the cosmic birthing of God's reign into the world is inherently filled with conflict. So as followers of the incarnate, the followers of the son of God, we should expect to find ourselves wrapped up in it. But what happens when we are the source of the conflict? And as followers of Christ, what happens when Jesus is the source of the conflict? We'll uh, look at Mark and we'll be in the third chapter. I'm going to be reading verses 20 through 35 and if you know, you've been around here, you know we, we kind of bounce around the Gospels all the time. Just a quick reminder, Mark moves really, really fast, right? Mark, Mark's Gospel leaves really no room for, uh, for extra words or verses. We are, we are really moving quickly through the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So by the time we're in the third chapter of Mark, Jesus has healed and preached all over the area. He's called his disciples disciples, and he is making a name from, for himself. And so we pick up in the 20th verse. And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat, right? The crowd was so large, there was no room to eat. Everyone was hangry, right? And when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Bezabul, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. And he called to them, and he called to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Jesus goes on to say, truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and brothers came. 
And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my, bro- my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, and mother. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer, the one who pulls us away from the comfortable into the conflicted. May we have the compassion, the boldness, and the courage to continue following you, regardless of where that leads. Amen. Y'all, I think a perfect response to the text that I just read is uh, what's going on here, right? Because hearing this text and reading it, I think, for the first time, it is a wild Absolute wild story about Jesus. Um, And I think to help us make sense of it, we need to put it into some context, right? Jesus is, um, in rather normal fashion, uh, already disrupting religious norms. We see that throughout the Gospels. There's uh, nothing to be shocked by the fact that the religious elite of the day are uh, already upset at Jesus, Jesus spends a lot of time angering religious leaders to the point that they, um, and maybe some a moment of grace, wonder if Jesus is just insane, literally. In some ways, that's to be expected because being possessed and being labeled insane is a common pairing in the Gospels. In fact, we see this over and over again. Demon possession caused insanity in Jesus's time, right? That's how they understood it. And the pondering of Jesus's mental state and labeling him insane is in fact a fairly common occurrence in scripture. It's in Matthew in the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapters. It's in Luke in the 11th chapter. It's in John in the seventh chapter, and we see it twice in the Gospel of John in the eighth chapter. In the tenth chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, they are quoted as saying, Jesus is demon-possessed and raving mad, right? This is common for the religious elite to look at Jesus in this way. And of course, here in Mark 3, we get the same story, the same accusations, the same skepticism of Jesus's ministry. But it wasn't just his enemies or opponents that worried Jesus was insane. It was also regular folks, including his own family. It's rather clear in our text, right, Um, And regardless of it being a disturbing episode, that Jesus's family is very concerned about what he is doing and who he is hanging out with and what he is proclaiming on behalf of God. Not only is Jesus involved in this conflict, but in some ways Jesus is the source of this conflict because Jesus has moved away from his family unit. And his family is really getting enmeshed in the chaos and the frenzy of this chapter in Mark. 
But Jesus, right, is not blameless in all of this, and the charges leveled against him. Several of the things in Mark, before we read this text, add fuel to the fire, most notably that Jesus has chosen to leave his home, his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth, by all accounts, supported both by archaeology and anthropology, was probably a very small village on the hillside in the Galilee region. Very likely, right, homes were small dwellings and were, were built inside of small caves. And it's also likely that everyone in, the, in, in Nazareth were related to one another. It's kind of a place where everyone watched you, right? Knew where you were, what you were doing, knew your business. And like today in smaller communities had a particular and fairly religious, rigid perspective. Leaving Nazareth would have brought much speculation about Jesus's ministry, especially for the eldest son to leave the community. That would have been a big deal. Because Jesus was leaving behind the social and familial responsibilities that are often given to the eldest son. But Jesus didn't just merely leave Nazareth. We see in Luke 4 that Jesus had actually run out of town. And he settles in the cosmopolitan town on the highway, on the waterfront, right, of Capernaum. It's an outlandish kind of thing for this Orthodox Nazarene to settle outside of his hometown. To make matters worse, right, Jesus kind of adds more fuel to the fire. He eats with sinners. He hangs out with tax collectors and revolutionaries. In fact, he calls them to be a part of whatever he is doing in the early parts of his ministry. He ate, right? Jesus ate unclean things with unclean hands. He, he didn't always fast. He traveled with Gentiles and Samaritans, right? He constantly broke Sabbath. And ultimately, Scripture shows us that Jesus uh, treated his family in ways that could have easily been interpreted as disrespectful. Jesus didn't just leave his home. He left with as much distance as possible between the life he grew up in and the life God was calling for him. So when his family begins to wonder about his sanity, it's probably the best option on the table because either Jesus is indeed insane or Jesus is a prodigal. And it's at this point, I think, in the story of Jesus' early ministry that we can begin to relate. For some of us, especially our queer siblings who are a part of this church, leaving home felt much more like something we had no choice in. Some of us, in fact, dread going home for the holidays or hosting the family gathering. Some of us just can't envision having that conversation this year. Some of us have even said no, right, to the family gathering because of the pandemic. And good for you, right? That difficult decision to stay home is indeed helping to flatten the curve. And yet the difficulty of that decision is compounded by the lack of concern or appreciation that some of our family members may have for how deadly COVID is. 
let alone those family members that we maybe all have that think that this pandemic is even a hoax. We, right, in 2020 at least, we know what it's like to be at odds, to be in conflict with brother, sister, and sibling, maybe mother and father, maybe grandma and grandpa, maybe uncle and aunt. And if this is you this year, the good news this morning is you are in good company. Even Jesus had this type of friction with his own family, right? Jesus's family showed up to try to restrain him. The question that is bubbling up as I was thinking about this this week, over what does your family question your own sanity? What are the things that you do that causes your family to question your sanity? What we see in the midst of this chaos in Mark in the third chapter is this unbelievable concern for Jesus's mental health and the shame and the guilt that would befall a family dealing in in all of this is uh, Jesus uh, in the midst of all of that we see a Jesus that is rather clear about who he is and what is his to do and not do right in the midst of all that is difficult to understand in this chapter, in the midst of the chaos and the expectations and the concern that we see from both religious leaders and disciples and family, Jesus is very clear about who he is and what is his to do and not do. The text provides us a clear picture of Jesus and a model for how we are to deal with conflict at the most intimate of levels, right? And so if we are to glean anything from this text in the year 2020, I think the first thing we must realize is that Christ is clearly self-differentiated from family and from others, Self-differentiation really has two kind of prongs to it. There's an intra-psychic kind of idea that we are able to distinguish between our thoughts and our emotions. It's really important that we're able to do that. And it's also interpersonal, right? That we're able to distinguish our own experiences from the experiences of others. It's both about self-awareness and about understanding our experiences are uniquely our own. And Jesus has a clear, uh, is clearly self-differentiated between all other characters in this story. There is balance between Jesus's emotional and intellectual functioning, and there is balance between Jesus's intimacy and autonomy. Jesus is showing us that the anxiety, the chaos, the misguided concern in this third chapter of Mark does not affect his own ministry and mission in the world. Second, because Jesus has this ability to self-differentiate, Jesus has the capacity to say no. And Jesus, it may come as a shock, says no all the time in the Gospels. He essentially, right, in this story, says no to his family's own physical restraint of him, trying to probably drag him back home. He says no to that. He initially says no to folks who want healing or signs or miracles. 
Jesus even says no to his own mom's urging of making some sort of bootleg wine to keep a wedding going. And he also famously refers to his mom as woman in that text and asks why he should care about the wedding like she does. Jesus says no all the time. If we are properly differentiated, we can say no when we need to. And if we are finding ourselves consumed by conflict in our lives, whether that's with friends or neighbors, coworkers, or even family, I think we need to get back to this place of being able to self-differentiate and then trusting in that process that leads us to then say no well to others and even to those that are closest to us. Because when we can say no when we need to, it allows us, like Jesus, to be really, really clear about our calling and vocation and purpose in the world. If we have the capacity to say no, to set boundaries, we begin to live into the identity that is not defined by others or by our emotions or by what we do or don't do, right? We begin to form an identity that is given to us by God, which is first what? That we are beloved children of God and there is nothing that we can do that will change that. When we're self-differentiated and we have the capacity to say no well, we can then live into the identity, that calling that God has on our life. Right? Because we see it in the Gospels. Jesus' calling wasn't to the needs and wishes or desires of the crowds or disciples or even his own family. Jesus' calling was solely focused on God's calling on his life. A, call, a calling that we as followers of Christ share in. A calling that clearly distinguishes the will of others from the desire of God. I need to be reminded of that. That my worth, my dignity, my identity is not defined by others, but is defined by God. Make no mistake, when we claim that to be true, we will certainly find ourselves in the midst of conflict. But friends, in the midst of this challenging and stressful and uncertain time, in the midst of the difficult decisions that you're going to have to make regarding how you spend the holidays and whom you spend them with, in the difficulty that is saying no out of love and respect, not only for our families, but our communities and neighborhoods, with all that is swirling around, we know that conflict will be present and even unbearable at times, yet <laughs> it does not define us. It does not define whose we are, why we are called, and what we do to fulfill that calling. That is defined not by others, but by our creator. And I think... Deep down, knowing that and trusting that 
allows us to truly love others and ourselves well. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.